Hello. Thank goodness there are people in the audience. Not just my eyes playing tricks on me. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Adam, and I don't have announcements tonight. Instead, you get a sermon. Um, let me pray before we kick this off. Um, Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the chance that we can be here, that we have the freedom to do that. Help us to use that freedom well. God, speak to us tonight, maybe through this, maybe through the worship, maybe through talking with people afterward. God, we want to know you. Help us to do that better. We love you. Amen. Who's the biggest egomaniac you have ever heard of? I want you to just discuss. No, don't say it out loud. <laughs> it might be someone here. Um, just discuss that with the person next to you. Just talk this out. Who is the biggest egomaniac you have ever heard of? Get a good picture of them, what they did that drove you crazy. Discuss. That joke is in there for you, because you get it. <laughs> All right, got one? I do. I cheated a little bit because, you know, when you're doing a sermon, you prepare. And uh, my least favorite egomaniac, scouring the internet uh, for the most objectionable human being I could find, uh, is a guy who calls himself The Situation. I see a few of you have had the, the uh, unfortunate luck to know who that is as well. Mike the Situation Sorrentino, former stripper and underwear model and later Jersey Shore star. Uh, spent six seasons on MTV, rotating between gym, tanning, laundry, and the clubs where he would get drunk and set up as many meaningless one-night stands as possible, going out of his way to make sure that no real relationship or love could ever come out of it. He uh, released a book called, Here's the Situation, A Guide to Creeping on Chicks. Wait, what does that even mean? Once said with no irony, everybody at the shore definitely knows the situation. As far as I know, everyone loves the situation. And if you don't love the situation, I'm going to make you love the situation. Just charming gentleman, isn't he? So that's the one I'm thinking of. You still got yours? Um, let me ask you this. What do you wish would happen to that person? Yeah. <laughs> I see you've played the church game before. The answer is always Jesus. It sounds like a squirrel. It's Jesus. <laughs> I think, as for me, like, I think a nice hard slap and some antibuse would do the situation a world of good. But let me ask you this. What do you think God wants for that person? I mean, I'm not God, but what I know of him from the scriptures makes me believe that he wants to transform Mr. Sorrentino's world for the better. Wants, to, wants him to know real joy, the kind you can't hook up with at a club. And Despite the incredible narcissism that guy has wrapped around himself like the stone of a walled city, I still believe that God could get through to him. I'm just not saying it would be very easy. It would take something crazy. Tonight, we get to take a look at such a thing. Uh, last week, Ben Mercer took us through Daniel 3, in which God protected some highly flammable Hebrews inside Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, thus demonstrating that he is in control. Tonight, we're going to study chapter 4, in which Nebuchadnezzar finally, finally starts to get it. The uh, text is up on the screen. Thank you, Daniel Bartels. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, 
May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom as an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. Uh, he is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. Not exactly a seminary prof here. And a laugh from the seminary prof. Good. Um, he's, Nebuchadnezzar's praising Yahweh in verse 3, and then by verse 8, is saying, oh, well, Daniel, he's named after my God, and the spirit of the gods, plural, is in him. And in 9, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, nothing is too difficult for you. Daniel's not a magician, dude, and it's not his power. It's God's power in him. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it, and how can he? He's been so thoroughly steeped in Babylonian culture that he's become blind to the truth of how God works, that it's the Lord who holds the power, not any human being, so that none of us can get cocky. We're not little gods. We're tools of the Most High. Nebuchadnezzar still needs to learn that. Verse 10. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can because of the spirit of the holy gods is in you. None of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it. Really? According to a historian named Parpola, in Mesopotamian iconography, the tree represents the divine world order maintained by the king. And sometimes the king is portrayed as the human personification of the tree. This is a common symbol for him. Nebuchadnezzar must have known it. And if so, it should be pretty clear what was coming. But... What was the customary Babylonian greeting we've seen in the first couple chapters of this book so far? O king, live forever. That was integrated into their thoughts, their customs, and it became integrated into their private thoughts. 
Nebuchadnezzar was so entrenched in the cultural belief that he and his empire were indestructible that this relatively easy dream was still something that neither he nor his entire staff could interpret. Someone sensitized to God's culture can, however, and does. In verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. But Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Then Daniel goes on to repeat the dream, adding, The tree you saw, your majesty, you are that tree. And in verse 24, This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. If only the dream applied to your enemies, he said. That's really impressive to me. I mean, Daniel's talking to the guy who treated his nation's king with such horrific brutality, who had attacked and scattered his people. And yet, Daniel's talking to him with completely unmerited compassion and respect. He's choosing in a relationship here. He's not vindictive, enjoying giving this bad news, yet he's firm in his forthtelling. His compassion doesn't water down his truthfulness, but the truth is phrased in such a way that it brings hope, tries to get him back on the path. This is a great example, by the way, of how to follow one of Jesus' commandments. He is loving his enemy by speaking in 100% love, but still speaking 100% truth. In verse 25, one thing I want to point out, seven times is how there's a phrase that's translated in there. Uh, It's not any more specific in the translation because it wasn't any more specific in the original word. Uh, The term just refers to a period of time. could be years, months. It could be another period of time. uh, Some of the things we're going to read about later suggest to me that it was probably years, but the point is that it was long enough. Seven in Hebrew symbolism, Jewish symbolism, It means completion. It was enough time to complete his humility and his understanding of his place before God. This document that's been passed down to us doesn't specify Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the news, but my guess would be that it just sort of scares him into compliance for about 12 months, and it's not enough to really produce any lasting change. I mean, even if he decided to make a change, how would he stick to it? he's, uh, He's got people obeying his every word without question as if he was a god. He's walking around in a city overlaid with so much gold, he can't help but feeling rich and powerful. Everything about his culture is funneling him back toward arrogance and away from humility before Yahweh. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
immediately. What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Try and imagine what this was like. For at least seven months, maybe seven years, some length of time long enough for his hair to become feather-like, maybe forming dreads. He's out there in the wilderness, just shambling about like Gollum, but farther gone. A former king of the known world, living like a feral cow, with no shelter from the sun over what we now call Iraq. Don't forget that. Or the occasional rains that will soak him to the bone. For seven months, at least. Imagine waking up alone and covered in mud and insects every single morning for 200 mornings in a row, if not thousands of them. And what do you suppose he was doing out there? The next verse that we're going to read seems to imply he still had some measure of self-awareness, so I can only guess that he spent most of his considerable free time just raging against God. You know, he hadn't made the decision to repent yet. His mind wasn't in that space. My guess is he just spent seven months or years getting more and more resentful toward God until one day he just broke, fell to his knees and wept bitterly, realizing he's finally found proof that contradicts everything in his life that he learned from the other Babylonians, that he isn't sovereign over his own life. God is. It took him, at the bare minimum, half a year physically removed from his culture to get to this. And when he does, he says this in verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. At first read, what caught me in this speech was my honor, my splendor, the glory of my kingdom. And I read that and thought, really? Really? You're still that cocky? Do we have to go through this again? But then I realized the text we're reading is a royal court document. That's the reason that we have it. It can't go out without Nebuchadnezzar's approval. And this story makes him look really, really bad. He learned enough humility to share this story so that other people might benefit from it. Makes me wonder, you know, are you willing to share stories that make you look really bad if it might shepherd other people back toward God? To raise their eyes toward heaven, as Nebuchadnezzar did in verse 34, physically and figuratively looking up to Yahweh, bowing down before the one God that is really in control. This was not a realization he could have made while immersed in Babylon. I mean, he had 12 months to do that, you remember, and he still failed utterly. That is the power of culture. Now, I don't know about you, but passages like this just scare the crap out of me. You know, ones where God refuses to be that fluffy little travel-sized deity that we sometimes want him to be. And it reminds us that he doesn't compromise. That if he has to tear us down and start over to build us back up selfless and strong, he will. 
Reminds us that, like the way Daniel broke the news to Nebuchadnezzar, God is also 100% love but 100% truth, and sometimes truth hurts a lot. There's a part of me that wants to say, well, God, couldn't you have done that any other way? But the answer is clearly no. After three chapters of three miracles, Nebuchadnezzar had already received some much softer attempts to get his attention, to change his character, and he ignored them, as we often do. This had to happen this way. And it had to happen somehow. Look at verse 30 in our passage today. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? My word, dude. That is a poster boy for narcissism, if ever I've seen one. As the royal residence. He's basically saying that the whole city is really just there because he wanted something pretty on his front lawn. You know, Dear Babylon, you're a bunch of lawn gnomes. And... And he's saying that he and his mighty power made it exist, just spoke it into being the way Yahweh did when he created the universe. What unbelievable arrogance. Pride is the root of most sins, but this isn't just about God enacting justice in some loveless follow-the-rules-or-else kind of way. God is love, and that's as true in the Old Testament as it was since Jesus hit the scene. Temporarily confiscating Nebuchadnezzar's sanity was actually an act of love designed for his benefit. Here's why. I was doing some reading on pride and the way it affects the human psyche, and I found this quote. A real narcissist is someone whose egotism is so deep that other people are not real. They are simply one set of objects among many others in the world that he manipulates, things that are there for his pleasure and convenience, like chairs, toasters, knives, shoes. In short, he is someone who is so entirely self-absorbed that he has lost the ability to love. Prideful man decides to enthrone himself as his own God, answerable to no one, thinking that his freedom and power will give him some kind of joy. And of course, it doesn't work. We think pride is an individual problem, and, you know, that's partially true. But I think we miss most of the time the way it's derived from the culture in which we live, forever pulling us away from God. There is, as some say, a war going on for your mind. And what's at stake is our ability to love. Now, if I'm claiming that self-worshipping pride is a cultural construct, I better be ready to back that up with some evidence. So let's look at Babylonian culture. Uh, This is the same culture that built the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where the text reads, They said to each other, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. From the very beginning of that city and culture, it was morally and architecturally built on pride. Isaiah 47.8 gives us another record of Babylonian hubris when the prophet, speaking about Babylon, said, I am and there is none other besides me. That's almost verbatim what that article on narcissism said, that other people cease to be people to anyone who becomes pride, prideful and self-serving. That is the culture that produced Nebuchadnezzar. His rooftop speech in verse 30 was an incredible bit of self-aggrandizement, but it was understandable in a culture that values individual human achievement so highly. That's part of what motivated Nebuchadnezzar's building projects, which historians say were likely completed by the point that this chapter happened. He was responsible, this man, for uh, two of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens and the biggest walls around a city you've ever seen, the historian Herodotus if I am saying that anywhere near right, said that you could turn around a four-horse chariot on top of them with no problems. 
one art installation at the Ishtar Gate, uh, which is on the north side of the city, has an inscription that reads, I, Nebuchadnezzar, laid the foundation of the gates, and thus I magnificently adorned them with luxurious splendor for all mankind to behold in awe. This message of human self-glorification was the sort of thing that you would see day to day as you walked around your city. And compare that with, for example, what God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6 when he told them to write the Ten Commandments on their doorpost so that every single day they would see that. Reminders of God's priorities, pulling them back from wherever their world would pull them away. But the visual culture was quite different in Babylon, and the values followed. Nebuchadnezzar led the army. He gave the orders. He paid the bills. With a worldview that saw human achievement as something that you ascribe to the human, not to God who in his grace allowed it to happen. This leads to insane pride. As far as he believed, he was answerable to no one. Why should that surprise us? As mentioned, the greeting folks have been using in the first few chapters is, O king, live forever. People never challenge him on anything. All around town, he runs into reminders constantly of just how great he is. You hear something enough times, and you start believing it. Like how, in America, we hear very similar things. We lack the wealth and resources that Nebuchadnezzar had, most of us. But how do we express our pride? You're told to go ahead and, you know, buy the obvious brand name clothes you don't need and homes you can't afford because you deserve it. Do these slogans sound familiar? you got to do what's right for you. Have it your way. Treat yourself right. We are absolutely saturated by cultural confirmation that making yourself your own number one priority, self-worship, in other words, is not only okay, but actually somehow healthy. This is the same society in which, according to the psych studies, test scores on a narcissism index are going up. Well, empathy, compassion interest in relationship, all the things that allow us to love as Jesus loved are going down. We're increasingly facing two opposing forces that are pulling us either toward God worship or self-worship. I mean, look at advertising, for example. Look how many billions of dollars every single year are spent trying to convince you that the contents of your wallet, your watch, and your mind should be spent first and foremost serving you. In the culture we live in, there is indeed a war going on for your mind. Now, don't get me wrong. I really appreciate living here. I love this country. You know, it's, it's beauty. It's potential. America is a place where you and I can come together and worship together freely and in the open. You know, I'm not going to get locked away for delivering the sermon, and I'm pretty happy about that. This country is a place with nearly unlimited personal freedom, and we're really, really into that. Like Nebuchadnezzar, people never challenge us on anything either. If you spot something ungodly and harmful in somebody else's life, well, you know, you better keep it to yourself, right? That's how postmodern, postmodernism works. We can all do whatever we want as long as none of us, God forbid, should say anything that might offend somebody else. We regard each other with such fearful respect, it, it reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's hymn about God at the end of the chapter. He does as he pleases. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? We respect each other's opinions more than we respect God's. And in so doing, we teach ourselves that for all intents and purposes, we are the gods of our own lives. I'd like to say that being a member of Christ's body, you know, the capital C church, protects us from that, but I'm not entirely convinced it does. Being a Christian in America is honestly more like 
it's like being in one of the churches to whom Paul wrote his letters, living in the shadow of the Roman Empire and its imperial cult. It's more like being one of Daniel's friends, resisting the culture of Babylon that surrounds them. Jesus said in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 that allegiance to God is a very you're-in-or-you're-out thing. Whoever is not with me, he said, is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, either you're working for God's plans or you're working against them. James 4.4 agrees. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Sometimes we really think we love God with our whole hearts, but maintain friendship with a system of values that prioritizes our own will above God's. What is our worship of personal choice, if not an assertion that whatever I decide ought to have godlike authority in my own life? It's a real short leap from thinking that to honestly believing that whatever we choose needs no further stamp of approval. It's a real short leap from that pride over what we have built to believing that we are answerable to no one. You remember earlier I asked you, would you be willing to share a story that makes you look really bad if it might lead other people closer to God? I want to tell you a story about me. A number of years ago, that egotist description, that perfectly described me. Once upon a time, in a place called Illinois, I met a girl. Her name's not important for this sermon, but what matters is that my family sensed danger that I couldn't and did not approve, and like any self-respecting, well, excessively self-respecting, angry young fool would do, I rebelled and kept on seeing her long distance. This went on for five years. And between the conflict over our relationship and just some other family tensions, home became not a particularly enjoyable place to be. It got so bad, as did her home life, that we both decided to essentially desert our families, move out, and drive a thousand miles to a town called Denver. Now, it's pretty important to pause the story here and point out that this catastrophically bad decision did not occur in a vacuum. As Mike explained a few sermons ago, and as Fran mentioned back during staff rants, I'm going to mention now because it's that important. Most of your decisions are made in advance. If you don't have a plan for when the decision comes, if you haven't practiced the habits that you're going to need in the heat of the moment, if you haven't enculturated yourself in God's wisdom and character, you're going to go with whatever voice seems loudest in the moment. That's just human nature. Whom you surround yourself with, you will become. Like Nebuchadnezzar with his many gods, I fit the God, called, I fit the God Jesus called Father into my life, wherever it seemed convenient for me. That's how everybody around me lived, after all. My friends, this girlfriend, they all called themselves Christians and then lived however they wanted. That was what I saw everywhere I chose to look, the same way residents of Babylon saw golden statues and towering obelisks reminding them just how untouchable and invincible they all were. Did you know culture isn't just a thing countries have? Nightclubs have a culture, songwriters have a culture. Groups of friends have a culture. I was surrounded by people who didn't prioritize making God happy more than they prioritized making themselves happy. And eventually I bought in without ever realizing it. Whenever I wanted to make another decision that elevated my will over God's, you know, 
I shrank away from my church because I didn't want to hear anything to the contrary of what I had so wisely decided was right. I decided, quite without ever really knowing I had decided it, that I knew better than God. And what incredible egomania that is to believe that the rules God gives us to protect us, well, those are for other people who aren't wise enough to make their own choices. Over the course of years, I became co-opted by my self-worshipping culture. And I made the most prideful and selfish decision of my life. Escaping from a bad home situation and finding an apartment that I could call mine with the long-awaited girlfriend was, to me, as illustrious as the view of Babylon from the palace rooftops, you know. I congratulated myself on making it a thousand miles to build something glorious with my own two hands and no help from God. Thank you very much. I'd proven myself smarter than my family, my church, and all the much wiser people who told me that I shouldn't try and run my life all by myself in defiance of common wisdom, really. I looked upon that new apartment and my new life with this girl who would help me break my family's hearts and destroy so much of the image of God in me. And I thought to myself, is not this the great kingdom I have built for my residence? by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Within one week of arriving in Denver, this five-year relationship that I thought was eternal, self-destructed, or rather was destructed, God annihilated it. When I heard that it was over, I never saw it coming. I had moved out here because I was so confident in my own ability to build a better life than the one I'd left for dead, and I was oh so proud of doing so. God dropped the bottom out of the thing that I had pinned my hopes on instead of him. There were so many times after that when I wanted to ask God, couldn't you have done this any other way? But of course he couldn't. I had ignored all the subtle ways he had tried to get my attention, as we often do. This is the only option I had left him. The months I spent utterly alone were some of the darkest of my entire life, and it took that long for me to really repent. It was nearly seven months, incidentally, before I made the decision to fully turn my life back over to God. You know, make him be the bricks and not the mortar. I raised my eyes to seven, to heaven, you might say. I wrote it down, this decision of mine, so I couldn't forget, so I wouldn't turn back, and started surrounding myself with solid Christians at my church, folks who I knew would spur me on to to good things, who would remind me what God's priorities are, what mine ought to be. That's what God was waiting for. Literally one day after I wrote that down and made that decision, God introduced me to my wife. Sometimes doctors break a bone so that it will grow back straight and strong. Sometimes surgeons take knives to a human body because to do otherwise is to leave the tumor in. And sometimes God will crush you to the ground if the way you have let the world decide to build your life lacks the priorities it needs to grow strong. This millennia-old story from the other side of the world still showed up in my life. Could it show up in yours? God loves us enough to wreck everything we have built out of flimsy pride and other people's choices and trade that pile of rubble for a beauty neither I nor you nor the king of Babylon himself could build without the blueprints that God has drawn.
So what's our alternative to being humbled like that? I'd much rather learn humility from a story or a sermon than from going through something like that again, or for any of you to go through that. Look at the outs that God gives Nebuchadnezzar and us. Acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. That phrase is repeated word for word three times in this chapter because it's that important. Acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. So what's that mean? First off, it means God is in control and never idle. First point, please. God is always at work to transform both the flow of history and individual lives. Don't hear me saying it's okay to do nothing about the wrongs we see. Because part of God's sovereignty is using us in the positions he's put us in. Got a friend who's driving his or her life into the ground because they're swallowing that look out for number one mentality that the world has fed them? It's not okay to just sit back and say, well, God will figure something out. Yeah, he will. And maybe it'll be by using you. We get to participate in the work of God in this world, like Daniel got to. God's sovereignty also means that he is God and we are not. Second point up there. This seems simple enough, but everybody gets it wrong. We're like musicians in an orchestra who forget that the only way this is going to sound beautiful instead of nails on chalkboard awful is if we all obey the same conductor, the one who has the plan. We've trained our brains so that the first step in decision-making is, what do I want? And that's not the first question we need to be asking. The first question you ought to ask is, what does God want in this situation? After that, then I get to think about me. Even Jesus, the only real king of the known world, said in John 5.19, The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus, the only human ever to have had the right to default to, what do I want? First, he still chose not to. His every reaction is calibrated to God's priorities. He went so far as to say he can't do anything apart from what God wills. That's what it looks like to be totally saturated with God's culture. Another thing from the passage, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. The King James Version uh, translates that, that last part as by showing mercy to the poor, which is actually a closer translation to the original meaning in this case. And uh, as a cultural Westerner, I read that at first and thought, mercy to the poor, what does that have to do with egotism? Turns out a lot. Um, third point up there. Your budget is a zero-sum game. If you spend more of your money, effort, and time on people that can't possibly repay you, you spend less of your money, effort, and time only serving yourself. An antidote to becoming your own top priority is to put other people's needs before yours. Now, this is a habit, like everything else we're talking about tonight, a pattern that either you develop or your culture will replace. Make spending yourself on other people part of the bricks you build your life from, not the mortar you use to fill in the gaps that are left. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. As we've seen tonight from Nebuchadnezzar's story and mine, we make that just idiotically, unnecessarily harder than it needs to be when we surround ourselves with people who live with backward priorities. Whom you surround yourself with, you will become. I'm absolutely not saying 
Don't hang out with non-Christians. Don't hear me saying that. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. The problem is we really like the first half of that phrase and don't pay as much attention to the back half. Yes, go out and be in the world, but do not be of it. Don't give the power to decide who you're going to be to people who don't have the blueprints for what you are trying to build. Surround yourself with God's word. Make your closest connections with those who are connected to Christ. Make that what defines you. And with your identity secured, then go interact with the world. These are hard things to put into practice, and all the more if you do it alone. If you feel like there's something that God wants you to change in your life, please talk it over with somebody. There's going to be folks in the prayer cave, that little nook over there. Uh, myself and some others are going to be back there during the second music set. If there's something you want to talk over, some change that you think God wants you to make, please come and join us. And let's bring it to God. You can start surrounding yourself with people who care about your spiritual health tonight. Brothers and sisters, God wants your life to be so grounded in him, so full of strength, that instead of getting pulled along by the gravity this world's culture exerts, you become the people that other people want to be. He wants your lives to be beautiful in a way that self-based lives can never be. There is a war going on for your mind, so choose by the habits and priorities that you make central, whether you will be shaped by the empty way this world lives or whether you will live a life of such beautiful difference that you shape the world around you for his name's sake. Join me in prayer, would you? Father, thank you so much for the blueprint. Thank you for your word. Thank you for people around us that we can go to to be confirmed in our search for you, in our quest to be like you. God, it is so hard to make the right decisions sometimes, and it's harder still to recognize them. So God, give us strength and vision. Make us aware of the things that are trying to sway us one way or another, and hold on tight to us, teaching us to hold on tightly to you. We love you so much. Amen.